in the very beginning of human history, there was a rumor about that uh, one of these days God himself would visit earth and uh, he would set everything and set everyone right. He would uh, take away tears and pain and suffering and heartbreak and heartache. He would heal the sick. The lame would uh, walk again, the blind would see, and he would raise the dead. That, uh, that rumor is found in a distorted form in almost every culture in myths and legends. But it found its pure expression in the prophets in the Old Testament. They predicted one who would come and would set everything right. And he came. It was our Lord Jesus. And uh, one of his apostles, the Apostle John, wrote uh, about him, about his coming. He said, if I were to uh, put everything down that Jesus did, you wouldn't be able to uh, shelve all the books. And so he selected seven signs, as he refers to them, seven authenticating evidences that Jesus was who he claimed to be. The last of these seven signs is the story of Lazarus, and uh, that's the account that I would like to read to you this morning, beginning with verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, that, uh, that story would, uh, would be unknown to you unless you had read on in the Gospel of John. John's, John's readers, were from uh, the people who lived in John's day, were familiar with that incident. But uh, unless you've read into the Gospel of John, you wouldn't know what, what he was referring to. This was a time when Mary wanted to express her love for our Lord, and she broke a small jar of perfume over his feet and cost about $10,000 in today's money. It seemed a terrible extravagance, but it was her way of demonstrating her love for him. This was a very close-knit family. They loved each other. This was one of our Lord's favorite places. This was his home away from home. Whenever he visited Jerusalem, he would uh, stay at Bethany in the home of Mary and, and Martha. Martha was a wonderful hostess. She apparently was a widow. She owned the home. And her younger sister Mary and Lazarus lived with her there. And Whenever I think of Bethany and, and our Lord's uh, presence there, I'm reminded of the, uh, of the symbol in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe of the two little rocking chairs in front of the fire, one for me and one for you. This was a place where he could kick off his shoes and he could kick back and just be himself. He, uh, he loved these folks. And uh, we're told that the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness is not to death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. 
Then he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you might, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And then Thomas, called Didymus the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let, let us also go that we may die with him. Uh, Jesus was in hiding. Uh, an unofficial warrant had been put out for his arrest. He had uh, been forced to cross the Jordan. He was over in a little town called Ephraim, just a little bit to the northeast of, of Jerusalem, awaiting uh, the Passover feast, which was a week or so away. Apparently, Mary, Mary and Martha knew where he was, and they sent word. The announcement of Lazarus' sickness is is remarkably restrained because the messenger does not ask for Jesus to come to Bethany and heal him. Perhaps they were concerned about Jesus' welfare, his own well-being, and they were afraid he would be captured. And and so they they simply announced to Jesus that uh, their brother was sick. And knowing what we know about our Lord, he could very well have simply said the word and Lazarus would have gained his health back. The odd thing about this story is that Jesus did nothing, absolutely nothing. He cooled his heels for two days. You would expect him to speak the word and heal, uh, heal Lazarus, or you would expect him to immediately pack up and make the journey to, to Bethany, which was less than a day's journey away, but he did nothing. He delayed. And then when you would expect him to do nothing, He uh, gathered his disciples and uh, he went to Bethany when it was too late to do anything. Lazarus was already dead. He told them that he was dead. This was was an unnecessary journey. It was too late. And uh, this would, of course, jeopardize his life because the officials in uh, Jerusalem were out to kill him. He said he behaved this way for two reasons. One, because of the light by which he walked, and secondly, because of the lesson which he wanted the disciples to, uh, to learn, he, he, he issues a proverb. He says, in the daytime, you can see where you're going. You don't fall over things, but at night, you stumble, you make mistakes. The point that he's making is that because he always walked in the light of God's will, because he always listened to what the Father told him to do, he always did what was right, even though it seemed to be very strange to the people that observed him. No, he was never out of step. He, did, he didn't make any mistakes. This delay was, uh, was not a mistake. He knew precisely what he was doing because he was walking according to the light. Secondly, he says there's a lesson to be learned in this. I want you to, I want you to learn. Lazarus is, uh, is only asleep. We're going to go and, and wake him up. Because Lazarus' sickness is not unto death. He uses a preposition that indicates that this is not the ultimate result of his sickness. But uh, 
the ultimate result of this journey to uh, to Bethany is the glorification of God. In other words, you're you're going to see something about God that you never saw before. God's glory is the manifestation of his character, it's the expression of what he is. And uh, Jesus' point is that you're going to see God in a new way. God will be glorified in your eyes. And uh, so they set off for uh, Bethany. Thomas, who, uh, this is Doubting Thomas, who in this instance got it right, said to the rest of the disciples, well, if he's going to go and die, let's just go and die with him. And so they packed up and, and they followed him to Bethany. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come from, had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. It was uh, custom in those days uh, to conduct a week-long wake in which uh, friends and family would gather and uh, they would, uh, would weep and mourn for, for the dead. Mary and Martha and the rest of the family and a number of friends had gathered there in their little home in Bethany. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming before he even made it to the house, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. For I know that that God will give you whatever you ask. Now, we know from uh, the fact that Mary said almost precisely the same thing when she met the Lord. They must have been talking about the Lord's absence during this uh, four-day period. And, and because they both say almost verbatim the same things, they, they, they're simply saying what they had been thinking and talking about. If the Lord had just been here, Lazarus would not have died. Or if he had just spoken the word, our brother would not have would not have perished. It, it, why wasn't he here is, is the unanswered question. Why didn't you come? Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus' words to her at that point were cold comfort, as they are to any of us who have loved ones that that uh, we've lost. You may have a husband or wife or child or good friend who's died within the last uh, year or last months. And uh, to have someone tell you that you're going to see him again it, very often is less than comforting because we don't want to see them then. We want to see them now. We want them here now. We miss them terribly. I've mentioned before the, the funeral for an infant that I conducted in I was standing with the with the little brother by the casket, and he was crying, and I put my arm around him, and I said, your little sister is with Jesus, and he just erupted in anger. He said, I don't want her to be with Jesus. I want her to be here with me. I want to play with her, and, and that's precisely what we say when, when we lose a loved one. We, we don't want to see them when Jesus comes again. We want to see them now. We want to play with them. We want them here, here with us, and I think... Uh, our Lord's statement, your brother will rise again, must have struck Martha as uh, not particularly comforting words. She said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jews had a thorough understanding of the resurrection. That was the difference, you know, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees did not, which, uh, as so Walt Kaiser says, is the reason why they were sad, you see. They uh, 
they didn't have that hope, but the Pharisees did because they took the Bible literally, and, and the Old Testament is, is replete with references to the, to the resurrection of the dead. She knew that that was a certain coming event. Jesus said to her, I myself am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will will live even though he dies. And whoever is living and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says there are two options in this life for those of you who who have put your faith in me. If you die, you won't really die. You'll pass from death into life. You'll have life eternal. And if you're living, when I come back again, you'll just keep on living. You'll never, never die. Uh, it's this idea that Paul has in mind in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says, with reference to our Lord's coming, he will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are living and remain will be caught up together with him in clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. Those are two options. Either we will die and then come to life and live forever, or we'll be living when our Lord comes back and we'll never, never die. But you'll notice that our Lord is not concerned about the creed. He doesn't say, do you believe in the resurrection? He says, do you believe in me? Because that's the issue. I myself am the resurrection and the dead, uh, and the life. It's not enough to merely believe the creed. Most of us believe the creed. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. We've quoted it from the time we're children. That's not the issue. The issue is, do you trust Jesus? Do you believe that he knows what he's doing? Do you believe that his words are true? Have you counted on him? See, that's the answer to all the questions that we have about the resurrection. You know, how is God going to gather all this dust and make a body out of it? I don't know. What is the body going to look like in heaven? I don't know. What is heaven like? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. All we can do is trust Jesus. You see, that's the issue. Do you believe this? When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha's statement is remarkable. She, she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you, not the creed, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's coming in, into the world. You know, women throughout the Gospels are given to making some of the most profound statements. Often men didn't know what was going on. It was the women who seemed to understand. It was the woman at the well who perceived first that Jesus was the Messiah. It's Martha here who recognizes who he is. It's Mary later who, who breaks the, 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 the jar of perfume over her feet because she recognized the, the infinite value of his person. She saw his worth. Well, uh, the men seemed to be in uh, Goonie land. It was the women who, who realized who he was. Says, I, yes, my faith is in you. You're the Messiah. You're the one I can trust. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. And Mary left the wake and she went to him. Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house uh, comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died again. You know what they had been thinking. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this this man from dying? You can see the tide of emotion that was flowing back and forth in this crowd. And uh, Jesus uh, empathized with the grief and the frustration and the and the anger of these people. The word deeply troubled is a word, it's an onomatopoetic word. It, it's used of the snorting of a horse in classical uh, Greek literature. He was teed off. He was angry because he saw what, what death did to people and how much hurt and pain it leaves behind. He was angered by the suffering of that death had had caused and he was he was deeply distressed and moved and he burst into tears but where, where do we ever where do we get off telling little little boys big boys don't cry for goodness sake big boys do cry there's nothing unmanly about tears even though sometimes they may flow on the inside grown men cry the manliest man i know burst into tears when he thought of, of the death of, of his friend Lazarus. As Gordon MacDonald says, sometimes tears are the only cure for weeping. Our, our Lord was affected deeply by, this, by the scene of suffering around him and by the loss of his friend Lazarus. And what it says to us is that God understands. He is not all head. He's not a machine. He's not a computer. He's, he has a heart. He cares. And uh, he suffers uh, with us when we suffer. He weeps uh, with us when we, when we weep. And uh, he asked to be shown the place. And uh, they said, come and see. And when the Jews saw him as he shed tears, some of them said, see how he loved him. Others, the cynics, said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? When they saw his humanity, they they thought he was impotent. Um, There's a a great line, almost a classic line, in in the the last of the Star Wars movies where uh, Yoda and Luke Skywalker are talking about Yoda's imminent death. Yoda is uh, 800 years old or so, and he's about to die. And as he, he lays down on his little pallet, Luke Skywalker says, Yoda, you, you can never die. And Yoda says, strong be the force, but not that strong. See, that, that's what we sometimes feel. The force is strong, but it's not that strong. No one can reverse the effects of death. And when they saw our Lord's humanity, they... They, they thought he did not have power to, to do anything about the death of his friend. They thought his humanity precluded his, his deity. But uh, the Lord moved to the tomb. Verse 38, it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. 
He said, take away the stone. The Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Martha, always the delicate one, <laughs> didn't want to embarrass Jesus and the crowd by opening the tomb. I love the way the, the old King James put it, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> he's been there four days process of decay had already set in. Now do you see why he delayed? Do you understand the wisdom in his delay? This is no mere resuscitation. This man was stone cold dead. He didn't pass out in his sickness and then awaken in the, the freshness of the tomb, as some commentators will put it. This, this man was starting to decay. The irreversible effects of, of death had set in. And our Lord walked up to that tomb, and it's as though he said, All right, death, put up your dukes. The, the passage says he was troubled again in spirit. That's that word for anger. He was teed off. And he shouted into the silence of that, of that Easter morning, of that, of that morning, Lazarus. Here, outside, three words. Now, I would love to have been there. I, I tried to imagine all this week what that must have been like. I think the silence in that crowd must have been like the silence inside that tomb. Every eye was riveted on the, on the door to that sepulcher, and as the echoes died away, they waited and they waited, and pretty soon a shadowy figure appeared in the darkness of, of that door, and Lazarus, still bound in the grave clothes, very awkwardly stepped over the sill out into the sunlight. And Mary and Martha must have dashed over to, to, to this figure and, and taken the face uh, mask, the face uh, cloth away. And there stood their brother with his big ears and his broken nose and his twinkly eyes and, and that that funny little smile on his face, and he was more alive than he had ever been before. This man who had been stone cold dead 30 seconds before, our Lord had reversed the effects of death. The irreversible was reversed. Now, what's all this about? What does this tell us about the significance of Easter, the meaning of it. Uh, Rollo Mays, a few years ago, wrote a book called A Quest for Beauty, and he described an incident where he was uh, visiting Mount Athos in, in Greece, and he caught the tail end of a Greek Orthodox uh, Easter service, and uh, the priest was passing out Easter eggs, and as he came by, he would give everyone three Easter eggs, and he would say, Christos Anesti, uh, Christ is risen, Christ is risen. And everyone in the congregation responded by saying, He is risen indeed, as they would receive the eggs. And when he came to Rollo Mays, who, as far as I know, is not a Christian, when he was given the eggs, he said, He indeed is risen. He caught himself saying that. And then he began to think afterwards, What if it were true? What if it were really true that Jesus rose from the dead? What difference would it make? And it struck him that the irreversible effects of death would be reversed and he would see people that had gone on before, loved ones that he had lost, and, and the effect of, of the resurrection of Jesus was overwhelming. 
And it should be to us, just stop and think for a moment of those that you have loved and who've gone on. What, what would it be like if after their funeral, after the time of, of grief was, you know, just actually just beginning and, and, and you went out to your car and there stood your friend, more alive than he'd ever been before, how would you feel? You see, that's exactly what Jesus did. A week or so after this event, they, they hung him on a cross. The whole universe conspired against our Lord, humans and demons, to put him to death, but they couldn't keep him down. He came out of that tomb three days later. He triumphed over death. By death, he beat death once for all. He destroyed what Paul calls the last enemy, which is death. And you know what that means? That means that your loved ones in Christ are more alive today than they have ever been in their life. And there may be some delay before you see them again, but but you'll see them. You'll see them. Dear friend of mine dropped a card off in my office this morning. I uh, want to read part of it. Uh, to you. This is a person who not only has lost a a loved one recently, but who has gone through a near-death experience herself. She puts it this way, each encounter encounter with death brings one to the realization that he is with me. That blessed presence always is so close, so gracious, never sleeping. I'm grateful for restoration to life with all its beauty and joys and aches and pains, but more ready for home than I ever was before. It'll be good to see my beloved friend, and here she names her husband, and all those I love who are there before me. And, but until that time, I'm eager to walk each step uh, the Lord each day allows me. Now, that's what it means to believe in Jesus, just to trust him. Now, that's really the, that's the question. Yeah, the, the, the question that our Lord addressed toward Martha is the question that I would address to you this morning. Do you believe that? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, will never really die. Do you believe that? Do you trust him? Are you relying on his word? Are you aligning yourself with him? William, William Law put it this way, If you have not chosen Christ, it will make no difference in the end what you have chosen. You will have missed the end for which you were formed and forsaken the only one that satisfies. Let's pray. Do you believe this morning that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Are you trusting him? I can't answer all the questions about uh, this world and why life is so difficult and why there's so much suffering and, and why death and disorder and disease seem to continue on unabated, but I can tell you this, one of these days our Lord's going to come back and he's going to set everything right. 
There may be some delay, but in the meantime, we can go on walking with him and trusting him. He said he's the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? If you've never put your faith in our Lord Jesus, would would you just say this morning, Lord Jesus, I trust you. I don't understand all of this. I, I don't understand many of the things in the Bible. I'm confused about a lot of life. But I believe you're who you said you are, and I can trust you, and I'm going to put my faith in you this morning. Will you do that? I don't think people reject Christ for intellectual reasons. The, the people that rejected Christ on this day did so in the face of overwhelming evidence that he was the one that he claimed to be. They saw a man raised from the dead. And some of those who saw that, that miracle refused to believe. So I don't think the question is one of evidence. The problem is not one of intellect. It's, it's a problem of the heart. It comes right down to who, who or what we want in the center of our life. If we want the Lord Jesus there, he'll come and he'll take up residence in our life and he'll be our Lord and he'll satisfy us as we've never been satisfied before. But apart from him, there is no satisfaction. Lord, thank you again for another of these undeniable evidences that you are the one you claim to be. Thank you for showing us afresh who you are. We thank you in Jesus' name.